Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. My name is James and today I'm delighted to be joined by Kevin Monk, who is the Chief Culture Officer at a company called Saad JV. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hello. Or rather, I should say welcome back because it's your second appearance on the Physician Associate Podcast. Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we, you were in the hot seat last time. <laughs> we made an episode of your podcast, Sardisms, uh, together, which I've shared out on the PA podcast feed as well. Do you want to just start by explaining a little bit about what Sard is? It's an NHS workforce company. It's a company that I never intended to start. Um, I'm a software engineer by training, um, did a computer science degree. Um, I built something for Oxleys, which is a mental health trust. It's a Dartford area, just really as a project uh, for them around uh, learning and development and um reporting on training and it just sort of snowballed it was a really successful project there used to be an organization called the nhs litigation authority they came in did some audits and were like wow where's this bit of software here where did you get it from and they went that guy over there in the shed built it it just sort of snowballed from there and we kept building things and kept building things uh, with oxley's it was this great kind of culture there of giving people autonomy they're a good they, they were often at the top of the staff satisfaction survey for trusts. Um, they used to give their staff loads and loads of autonomy. And consequently, their learning development manager, who's my co-founder, Phil, got me in and got me building all of these projects with them. And eventually, we got to a project which was medical revalidation. And they were a pilot site for revalidation of medics back in 2011. And so we built a bit of software there to track their portfolio, the good medical practice portfolio, and do their appraisals. And um, one day, Dr. Kocha phoned me up and he said, I'm going to a meeting with all of the other responsible officers in London, all the medical directors effectively in London. Could you come up and show them what we've built? And I thought it was a sort of NHS show and tell. So I went and demoed it and I thought, and they just want to see what we're building so they can learn from it. And at the end of the presentation, they were like, wow, it's really good. How much is it? And I went, oh, oh, I didn't mean to sell it to you. (laughs) I wasn't selling it. I was just showing you what we'd built at Oxley's. Um, And then I came out of that meeting um, with my commercial greenness. And Dr. Okocha is not commercially green. He's a very good businessman. And he said to me, look, you have built us something really valuable here. It's really great why don't we form a joint venture between us and you and see where we can take this? And we did take it and it went really far. We built um, systems for appraisal, revalidation, job planning, multi-source feedback, e-rostering, capacity and demand. Basically anything involving workforce in the NHS is where we sit. And it's in Guys and St. Thomas's and King's and Oxford University Hospitals and Nottingham and Leeds, and Manchester and Southampton and pretty much every big teaching hospital in the country is is using it. So really proud of where it's gone. Yeah, and that's, that's where we're at. And we're 10 years old and uh, still going strong. And um, with that in mind, is there a particular project that you've worked on that is PA focused or has included PAs? Well, um well, I feel like I set you up for this one because our latest product, and it's the team job planning. Now, when I say t- job planning, 
most medics i think will probably be hanging up don't hang up don't hang up your podcast keep it going um and maybe other other groups might might do so too um job planning is becoming you know a bigger thing i think in the nhs in short it should be saying roughly what you're doing as a job you know i've got a contract everyone who works for me has a contract here's the days you work here's roughly what you should be working on here's your job description here's the activities you should be doing now medics have been doing that for a for for a long time um they've had to consultants have had to say how many now this is awkward pas um but in this day it's programmed activities but you guys are also called pas so <laughs> yes it gets a little bit confusing doesn't it just call it hours let's call it hours i will i will stop using the word pas in the sense of uh programmed activities hours so they should have a job plan that has the number of hours that they do and what activities they're doing how much direct clinical care they're doing how much support in professional activities doing how many mdt meetings uh just roughly you know so that you have a model of the capacity in your service so if you're a trust or an organization you can say well i've got this number of rheumatologists and they're doing x amount of hours um, in this clinic in this setting now that's becoming a thing for other professional groups now and we're we're building up um, ahp job plans we're building up uh, job plans for clinical nurse specialists uh, physician associates and the purpose of that is that when you do that in a team job planning capacity when you're when you're looking at multidisciplinary teams and building all of those capacity plans together what you can do is you can look at your demand model and you can say, okay, how many referrals, how many follow-ups have we got for this clinic and who's dealing with them and how much resource do we have to deal, to, to um, uh, hit the backlog and hit the new patients coming into the system. And so you create a demand model, you create a capacity model, and then you do a comparison between them. And what pops out of that is your job plans. In an ideal world, I would have these people here, this is what I've got, and this is the gap I've got. And then once you've done that, once you've got your demand model, once you've got your capacity model, what you can do then is actually look at the 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 mix of professional groups involved in that patient's care and start to do service design. And that's where I think physician associates particularly really come into to the mix here. Because what we did at um, Barking, Havering and Redbridge, we did this for rheumatology department, elderly medicine, uh, I can't remember the other one. We've, we've done it for a number of departments at Barking and Havering Hospitals. We did uh, we piloted the team job planning system, and now we're, we're rolling out it at Oxley's as well, and uh, um, in, so in a mental health setting. But one of the things we saw was that in the follow-up appointments, there was quite a lot of consultants working on those follow-up appointments. And actually, because of the activity type and because of the clinic, some of that work could go to clinical nurse specialists. And so what you're doing is we we saw a gap of essentially two full-time equivalents within that department that could be closed simply by using different professional groups for that activity. And I think this makes an argument for where you do have those multidisciplinary teams, where you have more of a different mix of physician associates, when you've got clinical nurse specialists, prescribing nurses, you know, when you've got all of those, those mix, looking at the capacity model, looking at the demand model and saying, hey, if we change the service design here, if we had more people doing this on this particular activity, 
who do we need to recruit to? Where are the gaps? Where is the backlog? And the concept of having more physician associates or more clinical nurse specialists starts to come into the fray. You're, you're discussing it as, as an overall load on that mm. system. Does that make more, sense? More in terms of what work needs to be done and who can do it rather than yeah. this work has always been done by a consultant. So it has yes. to be a consultant all the time. It, ch- it changes that mindset, doesn't it? Or even just asking the question, you know, could this be done by a different professional group? Could yeah. who should we recruit next and where, where are we you may even look at the data and go hmm we're really meeting the the demand on this service here and why are we meeting demand oh look at all these physician associates that are <laughs> helping get these people through so you know it becomes a model for other teams as well so okay. we're really excited about it i know i know that um you know whenever you mention workforce it's like well we know it's terrible <laughs> It's like, part of me is like, are we selling fire alarm systems in a building that's on fire? Are we, <laughs> are we helping people detect that they simply don't have enough workforce? But when I think of it as another kind of uh, analogy, uh, budgeting, when budgeting meant the most to me is when I had the least amount of money. That's when budgeting was the was something that my wife and I sat down and went, hmm. We want to do all these things. We've got very limited cash. What can we do? What can't we do? What are the tough choices? How how much do we need to push on this in order to, you know, how much more money do we need to get in to meet our ambitions here? And I don't know if you've ever done that sort of budgeting, but you stress about it and you feel you feel worried about it. And then actually once you get it down on paper and once you do you look at your capacity and demand or your cash and your outgoings it's it's kind of a relief you've got a plan actions are great antidote to anxiety and so once you've got that plan down you you feel a lot better about what's possible and you can start to see a path ahead and i think for people working in those places where perhaps they are understaffed and they don't have the capacity actually even being heard even being able to point to a document and say look this is the amount of patients we're seeing, and this is the amount of staff we've got. And I can cry about it, and I can scream into a box, as one of my junior doctor friends was told to do, or I could point to the team job plan and say, what do you want to do about this? There's a problem here. And actually have the evidence to, to back it up. And I think that is probably something that physician associates may not necessarily expect to be doing as clinicians but are probably uniquely placed to be doing within their teams because the doctors rotate through their training programs and move departments every few months move hospitals every Mm. year move deaneries those kind of things so they're never there long enough particularly i guess to get stuck into the workforce issues and service redesign whereas actually that is an element of what physician associates could be doing in terms of service improvement redesigning the model of care um, and taking a look at those job plans, we are, by our nature as physician associates, I suppose, disrupting the normal models of medical care and perhaps could use technology such as what you guys have developed to further that cause. De- definitely so. I mean, I think this is one of the things we discussed on last time we did the podcast was that uh, one of the benefits of physician associates is they do stay still a bit more. So they get to know the terrain and they get to know what's working. And and in that role, you you you've probably got more ability to help shape service design and look at those plans and look at workforce planning 
Brilliant. So it was that kind of fusion between you being the software development and engineering side of things, meeting a demand for clinicians who need to use software tools. Yeah, I think so. It was born, it, it was that perfect sweet spot of a part of an NHS trust that had the autonomy to go and build things for themselves, to fit, build the things they needed. A small enough engineering team that you could go and uh, talk to them directly. You know, it's not sort of outsourced. It's not a million change control request forms going going through. You could talk directly to the client. And so, yeah, it was it was a product developed from the ground up. And I think that that makes all the difference. And that's often what you see in su- successful systems in the health service is that they've often been built by somebody in there and then someone's grabbed hold of them and commercialized them and turned it into something good. Unfortunately, I think often then it starts to lose that because that product then often gets sold on or and it becomes part of a bigger beast. And that, that sort of connection towards the end user tends to go. And that's one of the reasons that we set up public money, public code, myself and Professor Joe McDonald. And um, if you're interested in that, we've got a podcast on it on sardisms. But the idea was, look, we want more of that. We want more of systems where the clinicians and the end users and the nurses and the AHPs, but also, you know, administrative staff are sort of directly connected to the people building it. And it's small enough that it can be built up from the ground upwards. And how do we sustain companies that operate that way without them being basically consumed by a bigger fish and pulled in and become part of a kind of vendor locking ecosystem? And the idea was that public money, public code, the idea was that you would take, you know, public money and turn it into open source code. Not because open source is kind of hippie and lovely and vegan and, you know, knit your own yogurt community, but because Actually, when you have open source code, what it does is it allows SMEs, it allows small and medium-sized businesses to get in on that on that software that's been built underneath it and start improvising and you know doing their own um, innovative ideas on the side of that ecosystem. And so, if you've got that thing in the middle, you're you're pushing back against vendor locking you're getting you're giving people the routes back to their own data back to i don't know their own rostering data so you put all of this rostering data into a system you shouldn't have to pay to get that information back out it's your data same i know that those who work on clinical systems often feel quite passionately about this for the patient it's the patient's data it shouldn't be hard to get to extract it back out it shouldn't be you have to connect to this connector API and it's going to cost you X amount per year. It belongs to the patient. You're not there to build a business around around locking people out of their own data. And so so that that's the concept behind it. Um, and that's the ethos behind our company is how, how can we make sure that we keep that winning concept alive, that sweet spot alive of really good engineering directly connected to the people who need to use it. When I was a physician associate student, I was just focused on what my job might be clinically. And I had no idea really that I would eventually go into working as a PA ambassador for my area and promoting the profession and then doing some workforce planning projects that way. And Mm. I think it's 
becoming clearer to me definitely that there's a bit of an innovation streak as well in terms of how I can use digital technology to do some of that project. And just from what you've told me in, in the first few minutes of this episode, it's making me think about the other episodes I've done on my podcast with the NHS Clinical Entrepreneurs Scheme and the other episode that we made together is with, with Sardisms. And what I'm really excited about is the fact that Sard built this amazing online portfolio for physician associates. And you were kind enough to let me have a demonstration access to the website so I could see what it was all about for myself. And I think it's really brilliant. It's exactly the kind of thing that the profession is going to need as an e-portfolio. There's the opportunity for job planning, for appraisals, for portfolio review, multi-source feedback, questionnaires, all those sorts of things that we've been doing on pen and paper, I guess, as a profession by and large. And it's really exciting that you've built this digital version to help the profession move forwards and, and to be more efficient. For the average PA who's who's a clinician but not got any sort of software background or engineering background, where would they go to learn a bit about coding or learn, learn a bit about software engineering? Who should they be talking to and what should they be focusing on? Well, there is a uh, group that's uh, clinicians that code. There's quite a big community on Twitter of clinicians that are interested in tech. And if they uh, connect with me on, on on there on Twitter, I can certainly signpost them to other people who are, who are involved in the kind of tech tech side, the health tech side. And we, we could point them from there. But I think some of it is just go out and, and learn about this stuff and just enjoy it. You, you, don't, you don't always know where the serendipity lies in these things. You, the, that, that term like um, learn to code, right? So it's become such a, it's become such a horrible phrase. Um, you know, and I know there's like a bad connotation with it. But there's a real joy that comes with coding. And it doesn't mean that you have to go and learn to code because, um, you know, you should go and get a job as a coder. I think it just unlocks a world of possibilities in your head of what of what software does, how it's a lever to other things. You know, and I find this um, with every area that you look into in any detail you realize that there's another way to look at the world and techies look at the world a certain way. And when you can look through, look at the world through the eyes of a techie, new possibilities open up. And it, you know, it's really funny even like talking to my wife about our kind of relationship and stuff like that. Even kind of weird software principles end up um, like coming into discussion. <laughs> I know I know there's a guy who kind of runs his family based on um kind of like scrum exercises. It's like what's what's blocking you today and what do you hope to achieve? And it's basically got all this kind of agile what they call agile kind of methodology, which is like a project management methodology around tech. So of applying it to the family setting, you know, what's getting in your way, what are your blockers. So um I think I'd encourage people to learn, not not because they think that they're going to go off and become a software engineer, but because you're, you're opening up your eyes to what's possible. And so I would just sort of play play with languages. It You don't know. You don't know where it's going to go. You don't know what it's going to make you think about. And um, so just, just have a go at it because it's not scary. 
It's really not. And you can get going straight away. Um, I, a website I particularly like is Code Academy because you can literally load up the browser and you just, you know, Chrome or Safari or Firefox or whatever you use. And you can just go Code Academy on Google and then Ruby. Uh, Ruby is the language we, we code in. It's the beautiful language. It's the Italian one. It's expressive. It's got very few rules. You know, some people like uh, languages that are very strict. You can only pass certain types of data around. And uh, Ruby is a very expressive language. It's, it underpins um, a lot of the kind of software as a service products that are out there. So a lot you, you will have used a lot of applications that are built on Ruby, I'm sure. I think uh, Twitter. Twitter was originally a Ruby coded language. But if you go on Code Academy, look, look for Ruby and uh, just play around with it. Um, start to enjoy it. There's definitely things around kind of how systems talk to each other as well, the API side of things. I mean, you mentioned the sort of Royal College uh, portfolio systems. I remember a very early tender that we did for the General Medical Council were doing one for CPD points and they put out a tender for an app. And it was like, because the mobile phone apps were the new trendy thing, right? It was 2010, we need an app for everything. If we build a CPD app, then um, that's great. Then we can, you know, we, we will have an app and everything will be rosy. And I looked at the tender documents and I thought, where's the API in this? Where's the application programming interface? which is basically a way to push data in and out of a system. And it wasn't there. And we pulled out of this tender. And sure enough, eight years later, that project folded because it wasn't maintained. Now, if that thing had been done as an API, and if the, if the, if the code would have been written in open source code, any number of companies, including my own, could have come along and started pushing data into that uh, API for, for the GMC that we could some a doctor could come onto our system, do an appraisal, and then they, you could could have pushed the CPD points into the GMC's app, into their application. But because there was no interface, that wasn't possible to do. Now, I'm not blaming the people who wrote that tender. It would have been very hard for somebody who was procuring that system to to know what I know because they don't have my background. But I think some sort of at least low-level understanding of what is possible and what software is about and how these systems communicate with each other would have at least sparked something in somebody's mind to go, do you know what? I think we should include this part within this this tender and we should be buying something that definitely has an API on it. And if I if I said there was a golden rule in in health tech, make sure you're using systems that have an API on them please make sure that you there there is some way to extract data out of that system push data into that system and to allow other computers to talk to it because that's where everything falls down that's where you know you go from your gp surgery to your secondary care and maybe the data doesn't flow it's because that thing can't talk to each other because there is nothing to talk to. There is no interface. There is no way for those computer systems, you know, ambulatory care. What if you need an ambulance for someone? Make sure that that ambulatory care system has got an interface to it so that your EPR can talk to it. 
And so there's a big there's a big push of everyone who kind of comes from a computer science background to be API, 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 API. It's like, give us these things. They're called the application programming interface. It's a way for systems to talk to each other. Even better if they are open source, because if they are open source, we can, as engineers, look inside them and see how they work and then work out how we can work with them. So if someone's got an ambulance booking system and it's got the code there and they've got an interface, I, as another engineer, for a uh, maybe I'm building a patient administration system, I, as an engineer, can then look and see how that code works and make sure we send data across. But you know, you don't need to build that whole system. As a physician associate, I'm not saying you should go and learn to code so that you can build that system. But I think just playing at it, enjoying it, discovering what that world's about, will open your eyes to to what when you go to an engineer or when you buy someone's system what is possible and what you could do brilliant thank you kevin if there's a pa a pa student or even another nhs colleague uh listening and has heard this episode and is interested in what we've talked about where should they go to find out more about some of the products that are on offer well you can go to our website so sarjv there's um, online chat there nine till five monday to friday so just ping that we're a small enough company that that person can say i was on a podcast uh, i was listening to a podcast that had kevin on it and they were talking about workforce planning could you um put me in touch with him and uh, so just talk to the person on on chat there and uh, ring me up follow me on twitter kevin monk brilliant thank you kevin i'll leave links to the side website and your twitter handle in the show notes of this episode so people can look on their device and and find the links there. Thank Uh you so much for joining me on the PA podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great fun. And thanks to you for listening as well. I hope it's an interesting and slightly different topic of conversation for the podcast for you to listen to. If you've got any questions for me, you can find me on social media. We're at PA Podcast UK on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Precision Associate Podcast.